out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Well, it's a nice thought, Jim, but are we? Anyway, welcome. This is David Eastall. This is the C86 show, always bringing you the finest in indie pop from the golden decade and beyond. This week's special guest is going to be musician and artist Lindy Morrison from The Go-Betweens, who I spoke to very recently to find out more about life, love, poetry, all that kind of groovy stuff. So I've got that interview, which is fascinating. I hope you're making notes, because it's going to be very, very tense, and I will test you at the end. But to get the party on the road, I think we should play your favourite of mine. This is Love Goes On. There's a cat in my alleyway Dreaming of birds that are blue Sometimes, girl, when I'm lonely This is how I think about you There are times that I want you I want you so much I could bust I know a thing about lovers Lovers lie down in trust Love goes on anyway Don't feel any shame Late at night When the light's down low The candle burns to the end I know a thing about darkness Darkness ain't my friend Love goes on anyway Love goes on anyway You're happy I'm gonna spin you around I'm gonna cut your string Late at night when I want you I 
There you go. Perfect pop. Indie pop. That is the go-betweens with a track called Love Goes On. I didn't really need to know, tell you that because you would have known if you're a fan of the show. And the go-betweens, obviously. Anyway, look, this is David Eastall. This is the C86 show. Um, we could do admin before the interview. Yes, if you want to contact me, you can via Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Just go to at C86 show. Also, all these uh, shows, which I've been doing for three years, are archived. C86 show again. Um, go to Podbean, Spotify, iTunes, Mixcloud, the famous four, he says. Anyway, look, this is the interview with Lindy Morrison, who I spoke to very recently. And uh, this is it. Pen and paper, make notes, it might just change your life. Um, I'd been babbling for a few minutes about this and that and all the other, and, and then mentioned that the three major bands of the 80s, were, that everyone always mentions has been hugely influential, were The Smiths, The June Brides, and The Go-Betweens. And also, mostly, people always, always um, mention the other band, which is um, The Orange Juice, but... That was my point, well, and this uh, was Lindy's I think reply. Lindy, our take it away. Influences been a lot stronger post the eighties. Uh, I wasn't so aware of our influence during the eighties, but I've been terribly aware of uh, how um, influential we have been post the eighties since the band broke up, uh, because of course it's been very hard to um, stop people. You know, the, the small one. The small uh, cult following we have um, from, you know, being persistently interested in what the music was saying and how the music was constructed and arranged. But I wouldn't say I was so aware at the time. Um, you know, I, I, I was still looking at other bands myself and, and uh, being influenced by them to, uh, to kind of realise how, um, how influential we were being, but that's not to say that I didn't realise how important our music was. I, I, I was the one person in the band who understood that we would have a great deal of longevity um, because of the particular type of art that we were producing. Yes, and the interesting thing is, because I put indie pop down between the years of 83 to 87, which was really just the, the years of the Smiths, and it is, it all, it's not a great theory, it's not a hugely you know, watertight theory, but it, it kind of generally works. But the go-betweens go right back to the, the kind of punk period, which is really unusual that you were there in 77 and then sort of were still, A, going in, in 83, but then... You know, your your sound was so kind of indie pop from the eighties, wasn't it? Yes, but the band, the boys were not punks. You know, that they they, they they eschewed that. That the boys were folk artists, really. The 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 punk person was when really me when I joined the band. Uh, you know, I, I'd come from an all female punk band called Zero, and um, basically. Um, you know, and that was shocked everyone that I would join up with the, you know, the the, the, the two choir boys, as Peter Morton Walsh from the Apartments called them, and um, and they were really, you know, heavily influenced by Dylan, so they weren't punk at all. Right. But I, I was very influenced by that. And also, um, you know, the, the political movement in Brisbane where we were at the time, uh, I had been heavily invested in, in that. Uh, in 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 uh, you know marching against a truly authoritarian state government, and um, and you know that 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 of course was carried across into the go-betweens, 
But I wouldn't have described uh, the early go-betweens as punk in any way whatsoever. Yes, it's just it's interesting speaking to a few musicians from that sort of also the seventies period, where you know they sometimes you know they were just about to say right, we've got the band, we've got the sound, and it's all going to go well, and then suddenly what they what they sounded like was not like the Sex Pistols, and all the record companies were like actually, you've just kind of missed it by two years. Because I spoke to a guy called Richard Strange from The Doctors and Madness, and he was saying, we were two years too early for punk. And obviously, they would have been ideal. And some bands were just a bit too like the Eagles or the or sort of Fleetwood Mac. And I remember sort of a few American bands, and it's like like Niels Lofgren and people like that, or Clover, another band. So it's kind of a lot to do with timing as well, isn't it, with with sort of the music industry. You have to sort of, there has to be that musical kind of trend that's going, whether it's a bit like the punk or whether post-punk or indie. And, and sort of knowing, you know, that timing bit is quite a huge factor of someone's sometimes success, isn't it? I, I think the um, go-betweens, the early go-betweens, was e- extraordinarily unique and original. There was just nothing like us. That not, no, nothing sounded like us. Uh, you know, you only have to look at the tunes like Cattle and Cain, uh, the timing in Cattle and Cain. You know, the, the, the second record in particular has a number of uh, tunes that uh, um, had, had weird timing. The, 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 you know the the, the 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 very look of the band uh, from the start was quaint, uh, you know, with with the two Faye F E Y boys and uh, the woman on drums behind them. I mean, particularly in Australia, that was the most unusual look. Uh, it's not not so much for um, uh, you know the UK where there were girls springing up on instruments in many many bands, but in Australia where um, the, the the culture was pub rock bands where, um, uh, you know, all male bands dominated in the pubs because women, in fact, were not allowed to drink in pubs until 1967, 68. And um, so the, the, the pubs were the domain of men. Right. Um, you know, it was most, un- we were just an unusual looking band. We were an unusual sounding band. I, before Hollywood and Send Me a Lullaby, incredibly unique albums. There was, there's nothing like it. And, and now to get back to what you're saying about timing, uh, the interesting thing about both punk and, and, the, and the very early new wave was that um, in anything that was outside of the norm was applauded and encouraged uh, which is why, of course, women had access to the stages, but also um, uh, anything, any sounds were really encouraged that were different. Like, do you think about Gang of Four? You think about uh, Some of Wire? You know, like, like uh, even, even, I don't know. I was going to say, I was going to say Scritti Politti, but uh, I, I guess he was pretty normal in his sounds. But a lot of that early, for instance, the Rough Trade Acts. Everybody was a bit unusual, and we were unusual not not because we were emulating anyone. I mean, that, this is what you were saying. We were just on on the edge of, uh, you know, of, of what we, we we just came, you know, literally out of nowhere yeah. um, with our strange look and our strange sound because all three of us were untutored. You know, you wouldn't have got a band like that coming out of the states really because 
everyone, all the musicians in the States, even in that period, were very, very well skilled, had a lot of abilities, you know, whereas, um, you know, in Australia, there weren't any music schools. People were not learning instruments at schools. You know, that just wasn't happening. Of course, that's what happens now. But Yes. Um, Anyway, does that answer your question? Yes, and just briefly, I mean, your own musical kind of journey, were you, you know, in, in your early teens, were you sort of obsessed with music? Was it something your family were into and you thought, yes, you know, I'll pick up the drums because my... No, no, not at all. I mean, we're, I, I loved music, uh, but I was certainly, I didn't start playing the drums till my late teens. Um, and... Um, uh, you know, it, it really, it, it was quite a deliberate choice to go and play drums because I was living in a shared house with a lot of actors and musicians and, and just started playing. But no, no, uh, I mean, we listened to a, a lot of music theatre, a lot of Broadway uh, and a lot of Barbara Streisand, uh, a lot of Frank Sinatra, a lot of um, um, uh, uh, you know, like all, all the kind of 60s hit singles like Connie Francis and um, uh, Jean Pitney and uh, yes, know. classic, that, classic, that, that, yeah, cl- classic pop. You know, I was raised on classic pop and 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 Broadway hits and um, Barbara Streisand, you know, and Frank Sinatra. Like it, yes. it's all yeah. Oh, I mean, yeah. I know every every Sinatra and Streisand track. There is, you know. Excellent. Well, that's that's uh, good. It's a, yeah. So look, uh, well, it wasn't until later when I when I you know left home that I started, you know, obviously, you know, oh, I mean, the Beatles played a huge part in our in 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 in, in our listing, but until I left home, I, I wasn't choosing to, you know, I started listening obviously to Bowie and Lou Reed and the Velvet Underground, and and then of course moved on to, uh, you know, American. It's like Patti Smith and Tom Belaine and, you know, so on. The classics, the classic. So with, with the band, because it's quite interesting with dynamics of bands, you, you know, because often, you know, the, the original band virtually is there and then, and then you occasionally get a few changes. But, but you came into the band once it had started. So how did that dynamic sort of feel and how did that sort of settle in? Because obviously... They had never had a regular drummer, so there was not, nothing, but... Uh, there was, you know, that had a series. Seri- I always describe it as a conga, conga line of drummers, prior to me. Yes. But, um, but um, what was the dynamic? It, well, you know, uh, you know, it's been discussed a lot. But uh, I, I, I think I really disrupted um, their relationship uh, by my entry into the band. But I've seen that happen. In many bands, you know, uh, when a, a new person enters a band, and uh, particularly a drummer, um, the dynamic changes. Drums really change everything in a band. When you go and work with people who've never really worked with a drummer, uh, they really have a lot of trouble accepting time given to them by another. And um, perhaps that's one of the reasons that I, when they played me songs in strange times, I played their melodies and those strange times rather than play through it, which any other drummer would have done, and force them into 4-4. Four, four. 
Uh, also, I just loved playing the melodies. But um, I, I think I disrupted their relationship uh, quite a bit um, because um, it was a third person and there, 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 there were certain resentments. Yes, which is always interesting. <laughs> I know. Well, I, you know, it's it's kind of the, the curious world. I suppose with every most bands, there is kind of a honeymoon period, and then there's the sort of reality. Because the other thing that I've noticed doing this this show is that most bands have a have a five year narrative, and this is kind of like, I don't know. I suppose talking those indie bands which you were part of, you know, they they get together, they make a bit of a sound. John Peel would pick up the single, they would do a session, they, you know, would get a few more gigs around the place, they would get that first album, things were generally going well, they'd do a bit of a more of a national tour, which was a bit more organised, not so random, and then things would get a bit tricky on the second album, and if anybody ever did America, they'd come back and they'd be like, oh my God, we've completely ruined and we're going to split up now. So so obviously that is quite a sort of um, a common narrative of of a band, And, and so... And with those, mostly it has been the same dynamic within them. So bands who last a bit longer with new members coming in, very few people, yeah, sometimes it's for the better, but sometimes it, it sort of does, just doesn't work. I, I did an interview with Fast Eddie from Motorhead, and I think the early years were great because there was the three of them and they made those three classic albums, but no one really had the ownership of the band and it was only when it was kind of Lemmy and other the other two and they obviously knew their place that... That in a way that Motorhead lasted a lot longer with with this kind of the new old lineup, really. So I just often wonder how people cope with those kind of conversations, which is to do with almost being in a job, isn't it? Also, remember that we then took on Robert Vickers, and then you know the highlight was taking on Amanda Brown, um, and and the band only fell apart really after Robert Vickers left, and then we got a new bass player, but. The classic lineup of the go-betweens are the five of us. Um, you know, we were adding to the dynamic of the band uh, right up until Robert Vickers left, which was just before Sixteen Lovers Lane was recorded. Um, but but um, so but they, they Robert and Amanda were were adding to the band. I mean, so there there wasn't that problem. But I, one of the uh, things that may have uh, were very, very clear was that, and Robert and Grant made clear to us three right from the start, was that, um, it, it's a, my clock, um, was that um, only they would write songs. Uh, no one else could write songs. Uh, that was, a, 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 you know, a cardinal rule and in many ways um, that established um, the rule of law in the group, and and you know then other other rules were introduced. One that I introduced was that on every album there had to be an equal split of songs between the two men because Grant, when he started writing, began to write pure pop, and you can imagine how much the record companies just loved that. And Robert's songs were so idiosyncratic and and um, he would be overlooked if there hadn't been that rule. And the, um, you know, the very good thing was, of course, you know, Grant had an incredible loyalty to Robert um, and Robert had an incredible loyalty to Grant. 
um, they had a very special relationship, and um, so they they both agreed to that. Now, of course, the question of the singles was another contentious uh, point, and we never established that same rule for the singles, although we should have. Yeah. Um, as, as time went on, uh, Grant was getting all the singles for the very reason that he was writing the pop tunes. Yes. And, and then in particular when he and Amanda started working closely together and the two of them were a front duo, um, which was not what Robert had envisaged for a band that he'd set up to lead. My God, that is that is getting exciting. Because you did have, I mean, the 80s, I mean, and a bit like a lot of those bands that I've sort of mentioned and referenced already, you were you must have been working 24-7, the only thing in your life were the go-betweens, because the amount of albums and material and probably live recording, uh, live shows, meant that you probably had little time for anything else. So did... Did it feel a bit, did you have that kind of Johnny Marr moment where you were just thinking, God, this is this is so intense all the time? Oh, no, I, I didn't. I, my, my, my life was music. Like, you know, I, I had, I, I was pushing constantly to practice, you know. Like, in the end, that's, you know, one of the things that kind of Grant yelled at me, you know. You know, we're sick. You know, we don't want to be practicing all the time. We, you know, go and practice by yourself. Like I, I was insisting in, in all those early years. I, I loved rehearsal. I came out of theatre. You know, like I knew what practice was. Right. Uh, how, the more you practice, the better you are. And you couldn't have, couldn't have developed a sound that we developed without all that practice. You know, you just, it was, you, you couldn't have couldn't have got that sound you know you could never have reached that sound without spending a lot of time in the rehearsal room I suppose by 1988 I was pretty fucked up you know and for the very reason that you're describing uh you know that I was I had I had no life outside of the band and and I I was desperately unhappy because of that but I couldn't read that I couldn't see that I couldn't see out of that. Yes, I could imagine. And the other thing, because quite a few people I've spoke to, from the Chills to another Australian band, they all, God, I can't remember now, this is age, um, they all sort of had that moment where they said, right, we're going to have to go and live in England, London, let's go, which I always think is quite amazing. So when you're in Australia and you're thinking, but we've kind of got more in common with that kind of scene in London or... America, but it was a very, you know, like quite indie, was kind of quite, um, you know, a UK thing. Did you sort of need to sort of get yourself, I mean, the travelling must be hard. Uh, first of all, was it the Chills you were talking about, the band then? Yeah, the Chills, and there yeah. was another band who they, I, who, who, or who also all decided, right, we need to... Just no, they were to... from New Zealand, David, they were from New Zealand. Yes, I remember, yes, the Chills were from New... Martin's from New Zealand. But another Australian band who I now can't remember who I interviewed, um, but they recently reformed and have done an album and they're still quite friendly. Her name's Mary and I can't remember what his name is. All right, we had to leave Australia and move to London. We moved to London. We had to leave Australia because... We would have not survived here. We were too unusual. We had no chance here. We had to get out to find a subculture like ours. 
that there was no discussion about that. In relation to the travel, the travel is unbelievably difficult. You, you, you have no idea how lucky you are uh, to live in a place where you don't have to travel much. But there are advantages uh, in the lifestyle in Australia, but we couldn't, we couldn't use up those advantages. We had to get out and move across to London and therefore tour relentlessly the Northern Hemisphere and, um, and go back to Australia once a year for six weeks. Um, it, you know, the trip is a killer. I can't travel overseas anymore. It, it, the, the flight kills me. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I could imagine. So, what was I mean, it like? Well, did you feel? Did did you have a bit of a <clears throat> a gang mentality then, with when you sort of all sort of turned up in and sort of had to sort of live in probably kind of sh a shabby accommodation as a band, trying to think, crikey, this is this is quite the adventure. Did you feel like pioneers? Because because I know people like those the the fa the three famous Australians from the sixties, Clive James, Jermaine, Jermaine Greer, and the Rock. Not the rock, the art critic, something who's Robert Who's. They all came to London, didn't they, in the sixties? Well, um, did we feel like pioneers? You know, I, I, I didn't feel like a pioneer, but um I'll tell you what I because I was well aware of the wave before us. Um, so I just felt we were just, you know, following in, in the steps of people like Jermaine. But um we felt like a gang. We were a great gang. And that gang included the birthday party, the Moodists, um, the Triffords, us, you know, like it was a really, really cool time. But, um, yes, we lived in appalling circumstances, very shabby accommodation, and um, we were really poor. Yes. But we, we had a gang. And, and when we went out, it was strong, you know, we were very strong. Yes. And did you have? Because I was, I know the, the the one Australian band that we all grew to love was the Saints with Chris Bailey, but the band that I also, but you know, they were a bit more punky, and after a while, they only had a couple of good songs. That's a bit of a sweeping statement. But then you had the Triffids and yourselves, and you did bring a huge amount of exotic kind of sounds that us indie pasty white indie kids absolutely love. So were you kind of very conscious of them and going, my God, they've just got another album. Born Sandy Devotional, we must keep going. Did, did was, was there rivalry or was there kind of like... Oh, I, I had no rivalry, but Robert, I, I know Robert and Grant definitely did. I, but I had none of that. I didn't experience any of that. I mean, I hung out with the drummers in the bands. Robert and Grant hung out with the songwriters. There's a, there's a, real, um, there's a real layering of who you befriend in a band. Yeah. So I would always hang out with the um, drummers uh, you know, my very best friends are drummers. Um, and, uh, you know, the songwriters hang out with songwriters. It's, it's hilarious. But, um, but, but let me say, um, um, what, one band you, you, you missed, a band in between, uh, The Laughing Clowns. Are you aware of The Laughing Clowns? God, I have to admit I can't. And, and you're even looking at me. I can't even pretend to, actually. Okay, well then you need to do some research. And so Ed Cooper band after the Saints was the Laughing Clowns, and they had a tremendous influence on all of us. Uh, so you've you've missed a um, chapter. I, I missed a and chapter. It's very exciting. It's very exciting that you've missed a chapter because now you're going to find out about a very exotic band that influenced uh, our bands 
uh, like um, even the birthday party. I, I well, the bad, the probably put the bad seeds by then, but um, definitely the bad seeds, the go-betweens, the um, the mooders. And the Triffids, we were all influenced by the Laughing Clouds. Right, okay, that's a good one, actually. I mean, you know, there is the elephant in the room, isn't there? There is men at work, but we won't mention them. <laughs> I said there is the the other, the, the kind of, I don't know if it's the, uh, I don't know if you use that expression, the, the elephant in the room, there is men at work, which, you know, obviously don't really count, probably. But at the same time, I did see them live. No, with... no, at work does not count one iota. No. We, we have nothing to do with, with that form of music, that... That had nothing to do with us. The only thing I can tell you about Men at Work is that, well, there are two things. One, I watched the drummer. We were in the same studio in Melbourne recording when they were recording their single and we were recording um, Semi a Lullaby. And I was watching that drummer and he had to do a fill over a track and that producer was just working him and working him and working him over and over and over again to do this film. The guy was just sweating. It was just incredible watching that. Um, I couldn't believe how hard he was being made to work just to do two beats, a two beat film to fit it in, in the right place, you know, over and over and over and over again. It was torture. It was like that movie, you know, um, about the drummer, but hold on. And then uh, of course it, the, the, you know, the other thing is that the, the, the fascinating court case that we had here where um, uh, the, um, uh, they, they were challenged in the courts for a copyright infringement on, um, on that, their, their hit song and they lost uh, because they used a, a, a very popular um, uh, folk riff. The, the flautist used a folk riff from a, a, a song still in copyright. Yes. Uh, but it, that's all, that's moving into boring territory. But you brought up the very boring um, topic of men at work, as if they had might have had some influence on us. When in fact that they, of course they didn't. Not that I don't think Colin is a you know a great guy and a great songwriter. Not that I don't think that. But you know we're talking. We, that, that's miles apart, you know. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I got it. It is miles apart. I just had a bit of a, oh, yes, that band. And also, I was obsessed with David Bowie. And when I went to see him in, I don't know, 83, doing his Serious Moonlight tour, I do believe Men at Work was supporting them, which was, um, that's completely irrelevant, isn't it? But look, by then, you you know, you, you're obviously in this creative steam. There's you, there's Amanda, the boys, Mr. Vickers, everything's going terribly well. So when you were going through albums like uh, the the sort of Spring Hill Fair and Liberty Bell, were, was was there still that sort of sense that things were good? You know, when you when you not just then, but when you look back, you thought, yes, it was it was a sort of a golden period. No, no, the golden period was Tallulah. That's the golden period. That, that that's when the five of us recorded together the album Tallulah, Tallulah, Tallulah. Yeah. And the, that's the, that's the golden period. Uh, it, that is, that's the most beautiful album. But although I love um, uh, Liberty Bell, I mean Liberty Bell's just divine. And it was only yesterday that Amanda pointed out to me um, a YouTube um, a thing that's appeared of, of us on at Glastonbury. Oh yeah. And, and we're doing a version of Bow Down, which uh, she's not on on the record. But we're doing a live version with her playing violin at Glastonbury, and it's just divine. I mean, her violin on Bow Down um, is in this clip is incredible. Yes, and obviously having Amanda enter the band, did you feel 
really excited by that because obviously by then this was like 80, 86, which was really the golden years of indie pop. Did that feel like a really great addition to, to the lineup and, and again the dynamic? Well, if I could just say something before I answer that, and that is you and your listeners, if they, if they have an interest in this, should really look at the documentary right here, The Story of the Go-Betweens, which is, can be rented through Umbrella Productions because all of this was explored in a very, what was a very popular documentary in Australia that was released last year. Um, so that's just to give you a heads up on this. But basically it was my idea to get Amanda in the band. I chose Amanda and I fought for Amanda and got her in the band. I wanted a woman in the band. I wanted Amanda in the band. And um, it was a battle and I won it. Uh, so you, you, you should just accept that excitement, that, is, that, is, that, that, that doesn't describe yes. uh, the, 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 the feelings I had uh, to get someone as talented and as special and who's still my very dearest friend into um, the Gober Twins. Yes. And she's and she's fourteen years younger than me. Well, that that must have yeah. added a huge different sort of dynamic because obviously, as you realise, that everybody with a different from a different period has has such a different sort of vibe to them from a different age group, which I find as I get older, meeting young people. But then, but did with the band, you know, when you introduced it to Grant, Robert, and Mr. Vickers, did did they say, oh, that's a good idea, or did they say, oh, wait a minute, I'm not quite sure? Oh well. Um... I mean, basically, this is all covered in this documentary where each person gives their own different view. Vickers said he was never asked. Um, I, I, everyone says it was Lindy's decision and she just told the band. Um, and um, uh, we all saw Amanda together. We went to watch her in a cafe and I went in Sydney and we were looking for a new member and the boys were looking at men, of course. You know, they're just thinking... <coughs> Uh, um, I think they were thinking keyboards. That, no, they were thinking keyboards. There was no, there was no thinking. They were thinking. They yes. were thinking keyboards. And she was violin, but she was just her melodies were so divine. Yes, and that that obviously is good. But um, did you have a moment then? Because I, you know, have I have to confess, I do love my rock documentaries, and I haven't seen the Go Between one because it's not quite available but it probably will be very soon for Christmas. Um, but did you did you think, my God, we are just reenacting the classic Fleetwood Mac 70s period here in so many no, ways? No, I did not think that. I did not think we were <laughs> reenacting the classic. That people have been using that anomaly, all the, not anomaly, that, that, that parallel all the time. I did not think that. I, you know, yeah. I did not... I don't know what I was thinking, but I was not thinking Fleetwood Mac, man, just like I was not thinking men at work. No. You know? but, you know? no but, but it was... It... I'm very present. I, I, as a person, I'm very present. So I would have just been thinking we're creating great art and we're in this incredible band and there's nothing like us. That's what all I would have been thinking. Yeah, of course. And it's only in retrospect you went suddenly went, Oh my God! Am I, am I Lindsay? No, it's not retrospect, David. It's that people like you keep bringing that up. Oh shit! It's nothing to do with it. <laughs> you know, like seriously, do you think there's a single interview that I go through where someone doesn't say, uh, and you know, yeah? Oh. And do you think? And you know what else? At least people no longer say to me, "And what's it like to be a girl in a band?" <laughs> At least no one ever says that anymore. 
It shows that our times have changed. Yes. So, yeah, God. Um, I don't mind your questions at all because you have a very interesting technique and a very interesting manner, and I like it. It's not It's not like the normal, normal interview, so please okay. don't feel self-conscious. <laughs> but... But but I suppose I'm kind of interested because obviously there is this kind of the band and there is the kind of like the dynamic and everything. And then you bring in a, a young person and a female, you know, OK, that's a gender comment uh, thing. But but then, you know, but but she's going to have ways that Grant and Robert are going to, you know, did you sometimes watch it and go, oh, my God, things are getting a bit. Oh, this is good. Oh, no, that's not so good. I just wondered how how you kind of were observing those kind of moments when you started playing, because obviously she's incredibly talented, kind of, et cetera, et cetera, has got so much to give and wants to do it and has youth as well, which sometimes can, you know, as you, as, as I've found anyway. Young are you, is, are you, is your question heading towards, did I feel that the focus had moved from me to her? No, is God, no, no, not her, but just her bringing something in because you obviously knew how to work with the other people quite well but then when somebody walks into the room who doesn't know the history and just says right I'm going to be doing some this and I would you know and sometimes says something which is almost like oh my god you know that person he or she might have just said oh no let's not do that let's do this and you thought oh my god no one's ever said that to that person and I'm not sure if they're going to be able to cope because they've just had that you know a sort of hierarchy within you know like a work environment that a new person can sometimes just cut straight through and sometimes you can just hear everyone just going oh my god no one's ever said that to that person so I just wondered how if you ever experienced any of those moments with Amanda and and seeing them you know seeing her with the boys so to speak Um, well, um, I would say that those moments occurred between Robert and her. That's where those moments occurred. Yes. And, and did, and did you, did everyone else in the room just feel, get uncomfortable and go, oh, look, I might just go and make a cup of tea now? Um, I don't know quite how he coped because, of course, I was having my own problems with Grant. So, um, you know, there were lots of different sparks flying around a room at any time and um, one was really trying to avoid them as much as possible. Yes, but at the same time making something really creative you're not kind of in an office just looking at excel spreadsheets going oh okay then i'll just go over here um you know but you're trying to make something quite beautiful aren't you at the same time while just thinking oh my god it's getting quite fragile and i just wondered how that works within that creative dynamic within a studio or rehearsal room well it, it doesn't work so well you know like you know i i had uh, you know, I had tears and shouting matches and, you know, songs have been written about this stuff, you know, like, uh, you know, there were huge moments, you know, between me and Robert, public moments, and there were, uh, you know, huge moments between um, 
well, I get. I guess. I guess probably the biggest moments were around me. I, I was probably the most volatile of everyone. Um, but there were moments between Robert and um, and Amanda, and there were you know moments between Robert, V, Amanda, and Grant. Um, and you know, I, I guess the most volatile was was myself because I, I often felt under attack. Um, because it was such a difficult time during the 80s for drummers. Yes, this is true. This is true. And actually, it's interesting, isn't it, that, you know, God, I have to say, the, the rhythm section of the Smiths was just gorgeous. God, they were good. Mr Joyce. But then the one thing that also slightly gets a lot of bands, and this is what my other theory with the kind of the indie world of 83 to 87, I know you go beyond that, and and obviously that's the years of the Smith, so this isn't a hugely watertight theory. But the one thing that did knock a lot of bands out was suddenly the music kind of landscape started changing. So there was that kind of dance scene that started with bands, you know, like the Happy Mondays, Primal Scream, Soup Dragons, and just the the rave culture. So a few bands, you know, and they were just amazing groups like the Wolfhounds, Yeah, Yeah, No... Um, the June Brides, they they just kind of were thinking, actually, we've made no money, you know, we've been doing it for five years, we probably hate each other a bit now, and also everybody now wants rave music and we're just not ravey types, so we're going to quit. So you, ha, did you ever sort of have that experience as well with the band, thinking, oh, Christ, the NME, everybody, they, they kind of want a bit of a groove going here and we're not going to be grooving, not with the boys in their folk the folk fashion at all did that kind of ever influence the band or did you no, ever no no it didn't you know like it just didn't and but remember the producers had a huge influence over us uh, but and i guess it, so n- none of the producers i mean every i mean first of all every producer tried to commercialize us and they, they had a pretty terrible time but mark wallace got the closest with um with 16 Lovers Lane. I mean, it's a very commercial sounding album. Um, and, and, and yet you think about the drum, the drums are pushed way back in that. Um, you know, it's really, it's very, it's actually like kind of electric folk pop, that album. And the drums are way back. There's only one or two tracks where he, where he brought the drums forward. Um, and, um, we, we just weren't thinking like that. I mean, everything centred around the song. Yeah. Everything, you know, and, and, and they, they just weren't writing that. I mean, occasionally Grant would have an attempt at writing, you know, a different style and it just sounded like shit, you know. <laughs> uh, I, I mean, you can, you can actually hear them. I could point them out on the albums. I'm not going to do it, but it's just I couldn't be bothered. But, uh, you know, where he'd try a different genre and, and really it, it wouldn't work because... For a, for a start, we weren't skilled enough as musicians to play funk, for instance. We just weren't clever enough. Clever, well, Amanda would have been, and and John Willsteed, the bass player who was actually a guitarist who joined for 16 Lovers Lane and had such a profound effect on 16 Lovers Lane because he played all the guitar parts, um, uh, you know, which is why that album sounds so great. But we just didn't have the skills, you know. We just weren't skilled players. Yes. But with 16 Lovers Lane, which is, you know, it's a beautiful piece of work, isn't it? Did you, I mean, a bit like the last Smiths album, did you ever have any feeling that this was, clo- you know, becoming 
coming towards the end of the band or was it still kind of like business as usual? Oh, God. You know, I was the dumbest about all that. Like, um, you know, I mean, Rob Vickers tells a story in, in the in the in the in the movie about um, how you know how they were going to sack me at some stage, um, and how I turned everything back on back back. Uh, but um, uh, you know, I don't know what I thought. I, I honestly, I was so fucked up by nineteen eighty eight, eighty nine. You know, it's just the most unhealthiest environment. Eight years. That was eight years then, living like that. And, you know, I'd, I'd really lost touch with reality and, and the whole thing about, you know, like I remember I was also seven years older than the, the boys. So, you know, I'm hitting 38. I've got no boyfriend and I want to have a child. So, you know, I'm getting, I'm getting um, slightly nutty, you know, uh, and um, no chance, of course, of having a relationship. That wasn't, you know, this. So I'm, I'm working out how I'm going to have a baby, you know. It's, it's and it's beginning to obsess me, uh, you know. So you know, that's a different, whole different thing. Yeah. You know, it shows you it's a different viewpoint uh, as a woman. You know that I, I could see so many of my elders or my peers who hadn't had children because they hadn't concentrated on it. So I knew I had to concentrate on it. And I began to obsess about it. And then again, I, I really, you know, I, I've talked about this before and I don't really want to go into it again, you know, because so many of these interviews, David, you must understand it's repeating, repeating, repeating. And um, oh, by the way, Tracy Thorne is writing a book about our relationship. Um, and um, and and covering a lot of this stuff uh, that won't be out till um, February 21. But um, you know, it, it it was not a great time for me. 98, 98, 1989. Yes, that does sound. So when so when the the band finished. Or did you know? I mean, it's always a bit of a tricky one, isn't it? Sometimes people, you know, some bands, you know, no one turns up to a rehearsal room. Sometimes people go to a pub, and someone says, you know, I remember that the guy from James just they said they were sitting around the pool somewhere and said, look, should we just quit because we all hate each other? And everyone went, oh, thank God for that, and they did, and had about ten years off, and then slowly said, actually, we kind of miss it. And then they said, look, we've learnt a few lessons. Did how did the the kind of the go betweens kind of come to a, a kind of an, an a kind of some sort of closure okay so you don't know this story well not exactly no it's been discussed so many times uh, you know it's it's truly tedious for me to have to once again tell you but uh, I will tell you okay the 26th of December 1989 grant arranged to meet Amanda who he was living with at 6 p.m. Robert met me at 6 p.m. and they both sacked us and said they were continuing with the go-betweens and going to make the seventh album. Amanda immediately packed her bags and left Grant and then Grant had a breakdown of sorts and that seventh album wasn't made because he then tried to recover his relationship with Amanda. So Robert and Grant had decided uh, that they 
um, would be better off. Well, what that what Robert says in the um, film is that they wanted to go back to what they were in the beginning. And unfortunately for um, Amanda and I, the management, the labels, all only interest was in how they could save Robert and Grant and took no interest in following up and and me in particular but also her had she had a relationship destroyed as well but I'd invested 10 years of my life in that band and no one wanted to talk about anything to do with the royalties uh, any um, uh, you know anything to do with the name any it was a truly catastrophic and traumatic split by two boys who were completely and utterly bolstered by management and labels who were imagining that they would go to Nashville and record with Dylan's band the seventh album and um, uh, and were all terribly excited that they would get rid of this quaint group that backed them. And um, uh, and finally, Robert and Grant would receive uh, the, the 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 what they were due, and that is the story. Yes. And that will be confirmed uh, when people see the film. Yes. And because the great thing about the film was, despite my telling that story since 1990 on many occasions, no journalist ever published it. No, no journalist ever asked Robert or Grant in every interview that they did until that film about the breakup. Well, they asked them about the breakup, but they were never told that story. Never. And um, because in the end, everybody supports the songwriters, and that's fine, and I understand that. Uh, but we were treated abominably by labels and by management and by, and by Robert and Grant abominably, and I think I, in particular, was treated abominably after working for 10 years and living in penury for most of that, and then just as the band was reaching some kind of success, uh, being sacked. Yeah, God. Now, you asked for that. <laughs> that's, that's kind of and, one of... And, and now you know, David, why I don't do interviews anymore. Yeah. And I don't know now, I honestly don't know why I agreed to this, uh, because I've honestly done this so many times. It's so boring for me. It's yeah. so truly boring. And it's only because I don't know why. I, I liked your manner. You know, I looked you up. I followed some of your stuff. I, I thought it was good. Um, but if I had any inkling that we were going to go over the same ground, I would have never agreed to this interview. I don't blame you. So there we are. So how soon are we uh, in finishing? Uh, okay. So yes. Okay. So then. Okay. So just kind of curious. How do you? How do you? Okay. If you've asked this before, I've been asked this. You probably have. You've probably been asked everything. But um, then, how do you then cope the post that post world? You know, for the rest of your life. I mean, that's kind of a bit of an open question. But you know what I mean. It's just like I just wonder how you were emotionally and how how things then developed because obviously it it leaves a hole as I've noticed with every um, you know band you know for people who are no longer in music. But well, obviously, well, just let me answer. You know, so that we get to the get to it quickly. Um, uh, Amanda and I formed a group called Cleopatra Wong immediately. Um, and we put out two EPs. We both had babies immediately. 
And um, after we both had babies, we then settled, we knew that we could not have a life in a band. There were, it's impossible, absolutely impossible with babies to tour. Uh, don't say, don't, we tried, but it's impossible. So uh, I then uh, went on to make a name for myself in all sorts of areas, but um, d directing community music shows all over Australia. Um, uh, I became very interested in copyright and got very involved with uh, uh, exploring advocacies on behalf of performers, recording artists, copyright, uh, and and um, and that and in, and in also I had a social work degree before I um, I had a social work degree before I became a, an actor and before I became a musician, and um, I became a social worker part time and still am with the only music industry charity that was set up in Australia called um, Support Act. Uh, and by the way, I came over and, and, and talked to you, your people over there, help musicians, it's called over there. And um, I found all that work unbelievably rewarding. I've played, um, um, and in, in these last few years, I've had quite a number of gigs and I've been working very, very hard on my drumming, which had, because I've been directing shows, I hadn't been playing and I, um, and I um, and I've been working hard to and in loving just loving my, my life. My daughter's left home now, uh, so I feel like I found myself now. Amanda's story is fascinating because Amanda's become a very successful composer for film and TV series. So she went and studied after um, she had the child, and she just lives down the road. Uh, we could almost wave to her now, and uh, I could almost yell out, and she could hear me. Um, and um, uh, she uh, um, her, uh, she just got the Critics' Choice for the sound, uh, for the uh, music in a song called, um, oh, God, I can't think of it, um, if, if, if in Venice, in the Venice Biennale. Right. But I, I think the word teeth for some reason is in the uh, title, but I just can't think of it now. But she's been very, very su successful um, as a film composer. So... Both of us have gone on to have very successful careers, um, and and my opinion is that it was as a result of being treated so badly that we both set out to say we are unique and creative individuals, and we will outdo you we will outlast you yes. and uh, and uh, that that has been um probably not true that we have outdone robert and grant but we have certainly kept a pace um and um we were not done over by what happened yes i mean did you because i know a few people i've spoke to you know, you know, who went? Oh my God, someone's dead. Did did the did Grant die? And did that sort of change anything for you, or did it just sort of, at the time, just make you think, what the hell? Well, it's a shame you're not talking to Amanda because you know it really affected Amanda, despite the fact she hadn't had anything to do with him for a long time, and she, you know, she she's been with the same partner that she had the child with. Um, I mean, it. 
deeply affected Amanda. So the the fact that it deeply affected her, it affected me. You know, I thought um, Grant had a very long innings anyway. I, I was not surprised when I heard he died. He he could have died at any time, really. And um, uh, I was surprised that he had such a long innings. Yes. Yes, this is true. Anyway, look, sorry, sorry I've asked you a few questions. The, you know, the DVD, the film, I think it's still kind of on import, so it's, you know, hopefully... But you we'll... can rent it. Pardon? You can rent it. You can... can stream it. Okay, I can stream it. I haven't done that yet. I should do my research more. <laughs> no, 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 what? It's okay. It's okay, but you, you have confirmed in me that I'm not doing any more of these. I, I'm really not, you know. Like when Tracy's book comes out, it's going to be the same old stuff, you know. Yeah. Like because people love to talk about it. I get. I know. I know. I think. And, it's... and you know, I, I'm assuming your listeners. I mean, I, I hope you've got more than three listeners. I hope so too. That would be. That would be. That would. That would feel depressing. But no, it's you know, it's just one of those things. It's hearing the story, but also you know, with certain bands, like I said, you know, they they did have this. I mean, the other band was Orange, Orange Juice that I didn't mention with those. Um, those three but it's just oh, kind of people so many bands orange use as for camera god yes. as for roddy I, I i just loved roddy i loved everything he did you know like god there's so many bands you know yes. like god you know the raincoats the slits you know god I, I i i loved all that music i was so into it yes the corn dollies no, Dolly mixture. Um, yeah, so no, it's it's been good, and you know, and I've luckily managed to sort of track quite a lot of them down, if not all of them. So um, and art as well. So you know, it's good to hear. But you know, obviously, you know, with 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 some stories, it's like I can tell that sometimes people need about thirty years to cope with that experience that they had in their twenties or teens. And then they feel kind of actually I can cope now. But but obviously, the go betweens is is kind of a bit more complex or a little bit more you know, difficult, isn't it? I don't think I'm carrying, I'm certainly not carrying any pain now. You know, I, I, I mean, perhaps when I describe what happened, I, I sound like I, I'm carrying pain. But, you know, Robert and I have to talk every couple of weeks about matters pertaining to, on the email, pertaining to the go-betweens. There's always something coming up that we have to discuss. I mean, Robert and I are on, you know, perfectly polite terms but um you know he's not going to invite me around for dinner <laughs> <laughs> so yes so yes i suppose if the rock and roll hall of fame says do you want to all come and get your award you you'll feel more comfortable than when the cure got together recently and the you know various fractions of the band had to sort of get on stage at different times oh no no hold on we we had a bridge named after us in brisbane uh, uh called the go-between bridge and we all turned up for the opening of that. That was after Grant had died. And we had a lovely day. It was a lovely day. So, um, and then uh, this Sunday coming, there's a park in Brisbane being named after Robert Vickers, you know, um, which is just lovely because I've always felt that Robert was the one that, because he wasn't so, well, so so crazy as the, the, the four of us, that, you know, he was a stable one, that he never got the attention that he deserved. Uh, but um, anyway, uh, he's getting uh, he's getting a bloody park in Brisbane named after him, which is just lovely. God, that is nice. It is good. Yep. And, and I'm pleased that um, you and Amanda are doing so well because um, obviously it's always nice to hear it. And, you know, and I know Robert's got a new album out this year and stuff, so everyone's... Yeah, well, he's, he's doing a tour right now. 
so he's probably <clears throat> maybe in a neighbourhood near you. All right, so if we could finish, I'd just like to say, um, when do you play this and is it available online? Yes, I will. It, it will be very soon and I'll podcast it. So, you know, um, for those who... Because actually most people now listen to podcasts and they do on radio because... Yeah, they do. Everyone listens to podcasts, yeah. Because to Radio's be honest, dead. Radio's finished. Radio is finished. I agree completely, really, you know, yeah. because cause trying to remember to listen to something at three o'clock on a Tuesday afternoon is just pointless. Where someone says, send me a link, I'll listen to it when I can, works perfectly. I wish someone had recorded all the John Peel shows and put them up, but that's life, isn't it? Did you ever do a John Peel session? Oh, you bet we did. Yeah. You bet we did. Yeah, I, 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 I think it was really early. We might have done two John Peel sessions, you know? Yes. I, I still remember loading in the gear to the BBC. I still remember that. I've actually, because I don't remember a lot, but boy, I remember loading that in. It was such a big deal. Yeah, you know, was. taking the gear in, uh, you know, in a van and unloading, and, and, and everybody was so straight and serious, you know, unlike everything in Australia where, you know, people were smoking pot in all the green rooms, and, uh, it, it, you know, like Australia was very loose <laughs> compared to the, compared to the BBC. Yes. Which was so straight-laced. But the interesting you know. thing, just lastly, the interesting thing with those BBC John Peel sessions, often the sound, and I always remember this with the Smiths, that the songs that they did for them sounded better than the studio album that they did at times. And I think it was probably either the, the equipment or the producer or just like having to do it much quicker that, you know, the Hatful of Hollow album is, is a bit of a classic. And I didn't know, I wondered... No, when... no, I don't know why they sounded better, because you've been on the road. You know, when you when you record a, a song, you, you've never been, been on the road with it. Yeah. I mean, you might have. You might have. Like so often, you know, that's why the first album always sounds so great. But, uh, you know, the second album doesn't because you haven't worked them in. I mean, although we did work our songs in a lot before we recorded them. But when you, you've been playing, you, you imagine you've played a song on the road 200 times after you've recorded it. You, It's going to sound completely well, not different, but very, very relaxed. Yeah. And, and, you know, there'll be different intonations, there'll be different accents, you know. It, it's, that's why. That's why it sounds better. Yes. Well, I always remember Black Sabbath had been playing for years and then they just recorded the classic album in one, one day, kind of, well, you know, and everyone was like, well, is that it? And it's like, well, we've been doing it for two years. I mean, there's nothing we don't know about that so those songs. So, yes, the speed of it is probably quite something. But um, that's good. Anyway, look, this has been great. Sorry to bore you. But, but look, I'll, I'll send you a link to a little clip. That, I don't know if you ever come across it, the Trogs, where the engineer left the recording going when the drummer was trying to learn a beat and the band were getting really annoyed. Have you ever heard that Trogs recording? No, please. Can you send that to me? I want you to send that to me now. I will send now. it to you. Because you, cause when you were describing that moment where you were listening to that other musician, this is just one of those classic moments where you can hear everybody shouting at the drummer to, and saying, this is the rhythm, and he couldn't get it, and they keep getting more and more angry, and the language is just extraordinary. I and, could, well, let me tell you one story then. I'll tell you, I, I could tell you dozens of stories like that, man. <laughs> but I'll tell you one story. We're recording right here. We've done a recording of it, but they decided it was going to be a single. So they sent us in with two producers or maybe one. His first name was Craig. So we go into the studio. Now, now I'm not – I never played with click tracks, and this is the first time I'm being put into – I have to play to a click track, right? 
So I play the beat to a click track. Um, they, they've got the guitars, they the acoustic guitars are played to the click track, and then they send me in to play the click track. We go into the studio, and they have like the seven or eight channels of me playing to the click track, and then they and and they've got the acoustic guitars playing. So what he does, he fades up me playing to the click track, fades me down, and then pushes up the drum machine, then fades me up, then fades up the drum machine. He turns to the boys and he says, "Now this is a single. Which drums do you want?" <laughs> it was so fucking mean, you know. It was so mean, and you know they they go, oh, I can go with the drum machine, you know, because you know I'm moving, I'm moving. You can hear it, you know. It was just so humiliating, Crikey. so humiliating. And I can tell you dozens of stories like that from the eighties. You know, I actually, you know, there's probably a book there. So you send me that now. Let's finish this now. Okay. Well, just one, you... la just one last thing, because you mentioned, pardon, just one. <laughs> you know, on that subject of click chat tracks, have you seen the wedding present film? No. Because they've got a film of that's just come out. I don't even know if you can stream it yet. But it's all about their first album, George Best. And it's all about, the, and a lot of it is a big bit about the drummer and the click track and then the producer. And they have to kind of get another drummer and then they have to sack the producer. And it's really... No, 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 really. Oh, my God. Like, this, it actually makes me teary to hear these stories because you don't, no one talked about this stuff. Everybody was so humiliated. And it's only now the stories start coming out and... You know, I, I, I honestly, I was ridiculed. Uh, I've been ridiculed, you know, about a few years ago. There was a whole thing going, oh, you know, oh, she, it was always drum machine, which was just a fucking lie. It was not drum machine. There was some drum machine used on 16 Lovers Lane. Uh, you know, but so many people just wanted to ride you. They wanted to ride you playing, you know. They can't. Yeah, and, and you can just watch and you can listen to all those early albums and you know that that's me playing because I've got such a specific style. And and you can watch anything you like on YouTube. But there was a group of people who were uh, – they put it up on my um, – on my you know, some you know, someone's done a Wikipedia on me and they put it up on Wikipedia. But look, let's not talk about this stuff because when we start talking about this stuff, I begin to sound whingy and whiny because it, it really does hurt. Yes. And I, 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 I don't think about it anymore. And that's another reason, David, yes. why I don't want to do these interviews. I don't blame you. Yes, I'm sorry. We'll put that to bed. But I'll, say, I'll send you a link to the trogs. This is it. Come on. We're done, man. We're we are really done. done. Okay. Okay, right. look. Okay, look. Thank you ever so much. And, um, yes, okay, this is good. I'll keep in touch, but... You know, let's um, let's leave it there. Look, lots of love. <laughs> okay, thank you. I don't know if I love you, but <laughs> I'm going to end the call now. End it. Bye. Let's just finish. Bye. I know I've left the whole interview in just for your enjoyment. So if you're still with us, well done. You get a medal for um, sticking with it. And uh, and if you're not, I don't care. I enjoyed it. And uh, Lindy did as well, I'm sure. Or not, I don't know. We had fun. I'm not sure if I'm going to 
get a Christmas card from her. But anyway, a big thank you to giving me, giving me the time for that interview. This has been David Eastall. This has been the C86 Show. And as I said, if you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Just go to at C86 Show. Also, they're all being archived. Um, find them on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean and Mixcloud. This is going to be another track by The Go-Betweens. Have a great week.